Hello, everyone, and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for March 12, 2020. With the World Women's Curling Championship scheduled to begin in Prince George, B.C. on the weekend, this week's podcast includes an interview with Wayne Madaw, the coach of Team Hasselberg of Sweden, who are favored to win their first career world championship in Prince George. I've also included an interview I did with Kerry Anderson of Team Canada, the day following her team's victory at the 2020 Scotties in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And finally, for those of you that missed it, I've also included our recap of Championship Day at the 2020 Briar in Kingston, Ontario. Before moving on, I wanted to note that both Curling Canada and the World Curling Federation are still planning on moving ahead with upcoming events, including the Women's Worlds, the Canadian Seniors, and the Canadian University Championship, despite the increasing threat of the coronavirus and the cancellation of many other sporting events in Canada and around the world. From the Hack, we'll keep you updated on Twitter and Facebook if any of these events are cancelled or rescheduled. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world-famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to interview Canadian Curling Hall of Famer Wayne Madaw after coaching Team Hasselberg of Sweden to a third consecutive title at a Grand Slam event. We discussed his transition to the world of coaching, we discussed Team Hasselberg, as well as the women's game in Canada and around the world. Wayne, you played in many a Grand Slam event, winning 11 of them. How difficult is it for a team to win three in a row the way that Team Hasselberg does and also the way Team Jacobs has done on the men's side? The teams are so good. It's the best teams in the world that are playing all the time in these Grand Slams on ideal conditions. And uh, for you to be at the top of your game and to win, you know, to win a slam, it's quarter semifinals against other teams that are playing their best. And, wow, that's all I can say from both Brad Jacobs' point of view and Team Hasselberg's point of view. That's a really impressive feat for uh, what Kevin Martin did winning five in a row. You know, that was a great team, and they were just knew how to win games. Team Hasselberg has been very good this season against the other teams that will be in the field at the Women's Worlds in Prince George. Does that give the team even more confidence heading into an event that they've had circled on their calendar all season? You know, we, we don't really look at it that way, as, as we don't think that far ahead. Which it's a nice thought, for sure, but we prepare one game at a time, and, you know, the, the way the team's playing, you know, this week or this slam might not be the way they play in eight weeks from now, so... And that applies to everybody. Um, you know, the, I'm really impressed with how the, the Japanese, the Koreans, and the Chinese have really grown with the game, and, man, they're good shot makers. When a team is on this kind of streak, uh, is your role as their coach to simply get out of their way, or are you still pointing to small ways that they might be able to improve? You know, we're always trying to get better. We try and learn every game, every shot we, we throw. And, uh, you know, sometimes if I can pick up a few things that will help them learn a little bit is, is great. 
but I can like all four players on Team Hasselberg are uh, are very impressive and they're very detail oriented. So not too much happens out on the ice that they don't see. You've been around Team Hasselberg as they prep for big events, Wayne. What does a week in the life of Team Hasselberg look like? The week, say, before the Europeans or uh, Prince George or the uh, Women's Worlds. What's the week before that going to look like for Team Hasselberg? Well, we have a pre-camp before, so every championship I've gone to with them, we have about a you know a three-day, four-day pre-camp where we literally uh, we go through kind of the same routines and try and get in the same time zones and everything. We try to be prepared for everything. You know, eat kind of at the same time as games. Uh, we go on the ice. We practice for, you know, two, two and a half hours, depending whether we're playing an eight or ten-end event. We try and get a lunch in there. The team will actually go to the gym, get some workout time in there. Uh, we'll actually try and get some rest, and then we'll go back out and do it again later in the day to simulate like a night game. So we're trying to simulate the same routines that uh, we would experience at the World Championships or at the European Championships for the uh, pregame, for the pre-camp, during the pre-camp. So, Nothing is a surprise, so everything that could possibly happen, even from the drive to the arena, we, you know, we try and go ways where there might be traffic, so if you get delayed, you don't get the same warm-up time. So every possible thing that could happen during a game to prepare for a game is looked at and prepared for. One of the best stories with that was that at the Europeans this year, uh, Team Switzerland got behind a, a car accident. They weren't in it, but they were behind it and got trapped on the highway and all of a sudden just parked the car on the side of the road, got out, uh, ran the last couple of kilometers, jogged the last couple of kilometers to the arena, and uh, were a little bit late for practice, but, uh, you know, they managed to get through it and managed to play a good game and pull off a win. But, uh, you know, those are the things that if you've never experienced before and it's a surprise, it can throw you off right from the beginning. So, you know, congrats to uh, Pierre Charette, their coach, who obviously had them prepared for that situation. What is the one thing that may have surprised you about Team Hasselberg once you became their coach? You know what, how how professional they are and how they treat every little detail that goes into playing an event to preparing for an event to, to winning an event. They're just, they truly are curling fanatics or curling nerds, for a better word. And, uh, you know, even when we're off the ice, we get back, we have dinner, we're back in the hotel, we'll still talk curling and talk strategy until uh, all hours. It, it's unbelievable that it just it keeps going and going. They love the game. It's great. It's great to be around people. I have to tell you, for me, it's almost infectious. As I was, you know, near the end of my career and then missed a, uh, missed a few years and then to get back in around the game and to be with them, a team that literally loves the game, it, it reunited a passion within me as well. Was coaching something that was on your radar towards the end of your playing career, Wayne, or are you a little surprised to be on this new journey as a coach of Team Hasselberg? Uh, yes, very surprised. You know what, it's, it's funny how things happen. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I'd be uh, coaching, especially a team of, of, at this level. Honestly, that uh, it's one of those things that, you know, my parents, my mom says, you know what, something happens, there. everything happens for a reason, and when I broke my leg, I sure couldn't see the reason at the time, but, you know, here I am four years, literally four years later, and uh, coaching probably one of the best teams in the world, and loving every minute of it. It's been, a, it's been a real joy, and they're great ladies to be around, so I really have to thank them for, like I say, reigniting my passion in curling. What is the one thing that has stood out the most to you about the women's game since you started coaching Team Hasselberg? Is it how balanced the women's game is with so many countries playing at an elite level? Yes, yeah, very much so. And you know what I'm impressed with is, obviously they've had some great coaching along the way to the, you know, the fact that the coaches picked out you know, what are the strengths of great teams and what are the weaknesses of great teams. And they've picked out those strengths. And uh, you know, back when I played, a team might have one player that could throw it hard and throw it pretty straight and, you know, make a double peel, and, and you tried to play around those players. Well, now every, there's no 
player on the team that you can play around. You have to have four great players, and all the top teams, if you look around, do. Every one of them does. And uh, as soon as you see a team with a weakness, they seem to fall aside. But uh, so many teams, it's just four great players from lead to skip. And like I said, they just play 110% all the time, it seems like. When if you look at the current world rankings on the women's side, Canada obviously still has a bunch of depth, but the top of the world rankings is much more of a mixed bag with teams from eight different countries in the top 20, including seven Canadian teams. Should that be a concern for the Canadian curling community? Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head is, is we have the depth. So when you say, you know, seven of 20 are, uh, are Canadian, uh, I think that the key is like when you have, you know, Sweden and Switzerland. Switzerland now is what, three or four really good teams. Sweden has two or three really good teams. But you get into, like I say, China, Korea, uh, Japan, they probably only have one or two. And, you know, that's a big difference where we can have any one of ten teams that could win, you know, our national championship, maybe even a, a more than that. The other countries maybe have one or two. So, you know, when it comes to depth, I'll definitely put Canada there. And, and curling's hard, like all these. So these top teams in every country, they're full-time, dedicated curlers. This is what they do when they wake up in the morning. You know, you look at how Rachel's life has changed, and, and I'm sure 100% that changed for the better. And, yeah, her curling's not quite the same as it was, but she's still winning Canada Cups and still playing really well. But, uh it's hard to be a mom and uh, have a career and do curling and everything else. It's a lot of work, and a lot of people do that in Canada. You just provided an excellent segue for my final question, Wayne. As you just said, the top curlers in a handful of countries are essentially professional curlers, which is still not the case in Canada, even though many people believe that to be the case. Do you foresee a day in the near future where the top Canadian curlers will be able to focus on nothing but curling as opposed to having another profession or a side hustle as many Canadian curlers do? I don't know if we're, we're definitely heading the right direction. You know, it's, the slams are getting bigger and everything's getting bigger and they're drawing, you know, good TV numbers. Uh, it takes off a little bit more in, in Japan and the U.S. And, uh, and countries like that. I think it could be, but, man, to, still to get by on, to raise a family, to have a home, to put kids through university, you know, killers are a long way from that, that's for sure. <laughs> Carrie Anderson and her team of Val Sweeting, Shannon Burchard, and Brianne Maillard are set to represent Canada at the World Championship in Prince George. Following is an interview I did with Carrie Anderson in the days following her team's exciting triumph at the Scotties in Moose Jaw. Carrie, we'll discuss the key moments from the Scotties final in a few moments, but I'd uh, remiss if I didn't ask you if it has sunk in yet that you are a Scotties champion as we are speaking some 48 hours after that Scotties final. Uh, it still really hasn't sunk in. I've just been so on the go. I was at work today, and um, my work is so amazing. They uh, set up, uh, they put a poster up on my my door, and as soon as I walked in, there's a Canada flag sitting there saying congratulations, Clary. And yeah, it feels really amazing. Before we do discuss the Scotty's final carry, I want to take you back to the one versus two game for a minute. You often hear players from different sports talking about being in the zone. You certainly look like you were in the zone in your game versus Team Jennifer Jones in that one versus two game. Have you ever had a game like that? And I'm not talking about the mixed league at the club in Gimli or in an early season tour event. In a major event, have you ever had a game where it seemed that there wasn't a shot you couldn't make? Um, I haven't had one of those games in a really long time. It felt really good to just get out there and, and yeah, like every time I put the broom down, I was just throwing it really well. And, and Val and my sweepers were, were doing a good job managing it. And, um, yeah, I felt really good and really confident. 
Now, I have to ask you, after a game like that, after that one versus two game, I'm sure there was a part of you that felt like you could make anything at that point. But I'm also wondering if there was a small part of you that was a little concerned that you may have uh, used up all your mojo in that one game. No, after that game, I just felt really confident. And, uh, you know, I just uh, almost had a feeling that this could be our time to, to win this thing. So I just thought to myself, if I can keep this going forward, uh, uh, we should uh, be in good shape. Uh, let's move on to the championship final now. And starting the sixth end, your team was up 4-2, to two, and you were left with a heavy draw to nudge one of your own rocks onto the button for a second point. Let me first say that your facial expressions during that shot were quite entertaining. Now that aside, in the midst of a game like that, most players are so focused on the task at hand that they often move on quickly from the result of each shot. So they don't really get a, to appreciate when they actually make a great shot. That said, I'm curious if there was a part of you that took a moment to appreciate just how ridiculously good that shot actually was. Yeah, I didn't really realize my facial expression after that shot. But I guess I was yelling so loud, and then just in the moment, and then it caught me. It looked like it was going to cry, but I, uh, I it was uh, such an unbelievable team shot. Uh, my sweeper swept it really well, and I knew I'd be really close with it. And I think that was one of my favorite shots that I've ever made. In the eighth end, you scored one point to take a 7-3 lead, and it would have been really easy for your team to kind of get lost in the moment and start looking ahead to what it might feel like uh, if and when you won that championship final, seeing as such you had such a comfortable lead. That said, what was the conversation like for your team between the eighth and ninth ends, especially when you kind of looked down the ice and you knew that your opposition was Team Holman and that despite a 7-3 lead, there's nothing ever guaranteed when you're playing against an opponent of that quality? Yeah, we just uh, say just said to ourselves, stay focused, and you know I know we're we're up, but uh, Rachel and her team are amazing, and they were making so many shots, and we just knew we had to just uh, keep doing our thing and and not letting too too many rocks get into play. Rachel um, made some really really big shots, and uh, yeah, so we just knew that if we could. Uh, just keep doing our thing and uh, force them to one or hold them to two, would be, we would be in good shape. So now, uh, Carrie, unfortunately, I have to move on to the 10th end. Uh, I think the first question people would want me to ask you about that end is why you chose to draw against two with your last rock of that end when your hit game had been lights out in both the one versus two game and in the final up to that point. Yeah, I uh, when I got down to the hack, I kind of looked at it and I was like, well, I can see it, but I can't see as much as I did on my first one. But I've always dreamed about making a draw to the forefoot for the win. And as soon as I like put the broom down and I got into the hack, and as soon as I kicked out, I liked my kick, but then I added a little too much. And uh, I knew, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I thought maybe it would stop in time, but, yeah, just that little bit of an add, it just, uh, glided a little too far, just a foot heavy, um, which was unfortunate. A moment ago, I mentioned your reaction to that shot in the sixth end, and then uh, TSN showed a clip of you as your draw in the tenth was making its way down the ice, and from your facial expressions, it looked like you went from elation to despair to game on within a few seconds. How were you able to apparently turn the switch off so quickly after missing that important draw in the tenth end? 
And I knew, and I kind of just looked up, and I just seen it just slip a little too deep. I I just looked at myself, and I was like, Carrie, you're not losing this. I'm not losing this for my teammates and for myself. We will make that draw to the forefoot in the extra. And I just told my team, I'm like, okay, sorry, guys. <laughs> Go to the extra. And, and Val said, if we want it, if this is where we thought we would be, we would take it. And I said, yep. So let's just make all eight in the extra. And we did. Now, Carrie, let's move on to your final stone of the game, uh, which was the same turn, I believe, as your draw in the 10th. Just wondering if that was the plan all along, entering the extra. And also, what were you thinking when you were down in the hack, preparing to throw the rock, knowing that there were no second chances on this one? Yeah, I didn't really uh, have a plan of what draw or which side I was going to take. Um, I just knew that... Um, was going to feel comfortable with any turn. Uh, it just ended up that way, the way we played our ticks, that it, uh, um, one of our ticks didn't go far enough over, so they ended up using that as their guard. Um, and uh, I'd also thrown that pass earlier in the game, and I hadn't thrown too, too many draws that game, but um, I knew that pass, and I knew what weight I was going to have to throw on it. So the rock comes to a stop, Carrie, and you've won the friggin' Scotties. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? As that rock was going down, as soon as I let it go, I just I felt it. I just knew that it was really close, and um, that I was just hoping just don't pick or do something silly. <laughs> um, but yeah, the girls were cleaning it the whole way down and uh, weren't brushing it too hard. And as soon as it came to the hog line, and I knew right then and there that it was it was good and. Same with Val. She got a good time on it, so she was like, this is perfect. And, uh, yeah, I just started shaking, and I was just so excited. I uh, Just a dream come true. Obviously, winning the Scotties meant a lot to you, Carrie, but tell me a little bit about Val Sweeting, who had twice tasted defeat in the Scotties final when she skipped her own team. During Scotties week and in interviews following the final, you said that you also really wanted to win the Scotties for Val. Tell me what Val has meant not only to your team, but also to you as you've grown as teammates over the past two seasons. Oh, Val's such an amazing person, and on and off the ice. She is very smart. Um, and she knows the game really well. And when I put the broom down and I get clarity from her that it looks good, that I trust it. And um, um, if she ever thinks that we need more or less, she's always uh, uh, giving her opinion, and I trust it. And um, I think her and I have uh, come a long way, and we've grown together, and um, it's been a really good friendship. And... uh, I consider her one of my uh, really good friends. Of all the members of your team, your front end of Brianne Maillard and uh, Shannon Burchard are the ones that had the biggest adjustments to make after joining the team. Not only did they have to adjust to new positions, they also had to adapt to not being in the thick of the decision-making process on each shot the way they had when they were skipping their own teams, and they also had to transform their bodies to help them become stronger sweepers. Can you talk about the level of commitment that Brianne and Shannon have shown in learning their new positions and on becoming elite front-end players over the past two seasons? Yeah, like, they are unbelievable. They are in the gym. They are um, eating healthy and, you know, just staying in really great shape. Um, We had some injuries last year, and that's because their bodies weren't used to it. Um, But uh, this year they are um, 
doing a lot more physio and massages and just uh, keeping up and keeping their muscles in really good shape and keeping them loose. And I've just been so incredibly impressed with the way that they have taken on their front end roles and how strong they really are. They can hold a rock and I believe I have two of the best front end sweepers uh, in this game. So I am very lucky to have them as well as teammates and friends. Kerry, the four players on the ice are the ones that understandably get all the attention. That said, the alternate and the coach also play important roles if a team is ever to win the Scotties. Tell me about how invaluable your alternate Jen and your coach Patty were for your team in Moose Jaw. Oh, they're such an important asset to our team. Jen was absolutely amazing and uh, she's such a great, smart player and She's been uh, been a fifth for uh, for Jen for uh, numerous years, and um, I've played with her mixed, and uh, she's such a lot of fun, and uh, she always is down for a good laugh and someone to sit down and talk to, and uh, we got to throw her in for a game, which was really nice, and she was third for me, and she did an amazing job. She she shot lights out. Um, and with Patty, our coach, she, uh, she's been uh, really amazing to just uh, keep making sure we're doing our right things, keeping us in check. And uh, um, we brought her back on board just um, at the last time in Yorkton and then for provincials and now and then for nationals. So she's, uh, she's brought us a long way and we're so happy to have her back with us she's a huge asset to our team as well and um uh she definitely uh gets us laughing uh uh when we need it so we're very lucky to have both of them and finally carrie the next stop for you and your team is the women's world in prince george how excited are you about the fact that you will soon be competing with the maple leaf on your back oh it's gonna be an unbelievable feeling um there might be a little pressure put on us, but we won't let that get to us. We're just going to enjoy every single minute of it and really embrace it. Um, it's such an honor to wear that maple leaf on your back, and uh, we couldn't be more proud to wear it. If you're looking to buy some new curling equipment, look no further than Hardline. They offer premium curling equipment that is a choice of the world's top curlers. Whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist, Team Schuster, or women's Olympic gold medalists, Sweden's Team Hasselberg. Or how about the top Canadian teams, Briar Champs, Team Cooey, Team Gushu, Team Jacobs, Team Carruthers, and world champions, Team Adine and Team Tiranzoni. Hardline's new composite broom, the Hybrid Helium, is the lightest composite broom on the market, and it's perfect for beginners. Hardline also offers a full range of equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel, and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and join the revolution. As you all know by now, Team Gushu, representing Newfoundland and Labrador, won the bar for the third time in four years by defeating Alberta's Team Botchers 7-3 in the championship final. According to Skip Brad Gushu, it was a welcome victory after what had been an uncharacteristic dry spell for a team so used to winning major championships. You know, this one, they all feel a little different. This one, you know, we struggled for the last year and a half. And, and uh, you know, to, to come back this week and to play as good as we did against this field, 
you know, it, it, it almost feels better than the second one. Um, I hate I hate to, to put that one down, but you know, we played so very very well in Regina that we never had any adversity. This week we did, and um, you know, to come through and win, it it's, feels pretty good. You know, that's what we were all saying up on the podium. We finally got off the. Uh, the wagon we were on where we were losing a bunch of finals and semifinals, so it's nice to actually come through and, and perform the way we're capable of performing in big moments. Elite teams don't need added motivation at a briar, but Team Gushu found some not only in trying to end their winless streak, but also because they felt a little disrespected when many didn't place them as one of the favorites entering the 2020 briar. And certainly the year and a half between wins, you know, was weighing on us, and, and uh, you know, it yeah, that was that's the biggest part. You, you, you wonder if you're ever going to get back when you have those long droughts. And, and uh, you know, we had a little bit of a chip because in some of the some of the lead up to it, you know, you hear about the favorites and we weren't included. And uh, that, to be honest, it bothered us. And um, you know, I, I think it really motivated us, especially in the championship round and, and in the playoffs, to uh, to play our best. The championship final took an early turn when Brendan Botcher missed shots in the first three ends that allowed Newfoundland and Labrador to take a four to one lead. From there, Gushu's team controlled the rest of the game. Yeah, I was I was really surprised. I um, you know I expected him to come out you know guns a blazing and and. Uh, you know, with the last two years of experience, you know, we were ready for a big game and we got, a, you know, three misses really in, in each of the first three ends. And, you know, once we went up 4-1, to one, it was for us, you know, it felt like we had all the momentum then and it was just a matter of not taking the foot off the gas and, and we didn't do it. Having gone through several Briar disappointments of his own over the years, Mark Nichols of Team Gushu certainly empathized with Team Botcher. It's certainly not, not easy and... Brendan's going to win a heck of a lot of these things over the course of his career. He's too good not to. Uh, so, and they're a great team. So, um, hopefully, we're done early before they start winning. Nichols went on to say that the grind of Briar Week also serves as good preparation for the upcoming World Championships in Scotland. It was a grind all week. So, uh, you know, and we're just going to face the rest of the world now and their best team. So, we're going to enjoy this win and get back to work and get ready to represent Canada as well as we can. As mentioned earlier, it was a difficult night at the office for Brendan Botcher in the championship final at the 2020 Briar. However, Botcher was still very happy with the way his team performed throughout the week in Kingston. Overall, you got to take a look and you'd still be pretty proud of how it went this week. Not the finish we wanted, but sometimes that's just what happens. Losing a third straight Briar final was difficult for third Darren Molding of Team Botcher, who fought back tears while discussing the outcome of the championship final in the post-game media scrum. Yeah, uh, I'm starting to get older, so I don't know how many times I'm going to be able to get back here. And uh, I'm just proud of the guys. Just wish it would have turned out different. Molding came to the defense of his skip, saying that Botcher's early misses were well-thrown rocks that simply didn't curl like the team expected them to. I thought we played three really good ends at the beginning. And uh, I don't know, but it, it just seemed like Brendan's last rock wouldn't curl like we expected. He threw him really well. Um, and then we just had that first rock would curl and then the second rock didn't seem to curl enough. So I'm not really sure maybe um, with the little extra humidity or frost on the ice, 
but uh, Brendan deserved a better fate on those throws, for sure. Losing in the playoffs at the Briar can sting and often brings out emotional responses from the players involved. One of the more heart-wrenching moments of the 2020 Briar was watching as Saskatchewan's Matt Dunstone was being consoled by coach Adam Kingsbury and his teammates following his team's semifinal loss to Newfoundland and Labrador. Despite the loss to the eventual champions, it was a great week for Dunstone and his team, who certainly opened the eyes of many Canadian curling fans and earned a bunch of new fans across the country. You know, in, in the grand scheme of things, it was a hard-fought heck of a week from us. To, to play championship Sunday at the Briar, pretty pretty darn cool and proud of the guys. Yeah, I think so. You get a taste of it and you, you wish it was happening again tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, I mean, now we got we got so much to work work towards now and, and uh, we, we're, we've proven that we belong. To end this final recap from the 2020 Briar, I wanted to post an interview I did on Saturday afternoon with three-time Briar champion Jeff Stoughton, who serves as the head of the men's program at Curling Canada, where we discussed this year's Briar and the strength of the men's game in the country. Jeff, the eight top-ranked Canadian men's teams all reached the championship round of the 2020 Briar. As the head of the Canadian men's program, how satisfying has it been to see Canada's top teams all bring their A game to an event as important as the Briar? Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty amazing that uh, you know all the teams that you would expect to get through got through, and and it's made for an unbelievable championship round. It. Uh, you know, it just goes to show, you know, all that hard work and dedication that they put in throughout the year is paying off, and they're right where they should be. And then, uh, you know, it's going to get whittled down to four, and I'm sure that's going to be uh, an unbelievable weekend. Speaking with the media last night, uh, Brent Lang told us that uh, he was looking at the teams on the different sheets yesterday and realized that this was essentially going to be the field at the Canadian Olympic trials in 2021. Now, do you see the competition in Kingston as a precursor of sorts to what Canadian curling fans might expect to see in Saskatoon at those 2021 Olympic trials? I think so. I mean, you look at those teams and, uh, you know, it's hard to crack that top eight. There's no doubt about it. And uh, every game is so big and meaningful that it is like a trial as soon as you get to this championship round, you know, you get uh, you've got to play four more games and they're all against teams that you would expect you that could win this thing and I think that's the same with the trials so I think um, you know you could see it even last night the uh, intensity is ramping up and and it's it's do or die today for quite a few teams so it's it's going to be interesting Brian week can be quite a grind as you know from your years of competing in the event how exhausted are the players at this point in the week when the competition is relentless and every game means so much yeah, I mean, it's it's something that uh, it's hard to describe, but I mean, it's it's mentally and physically exhausting for these teams. And that's, you know, that's why they put in all that hard work during the year to be able to get through this. And and that's really what it's going to take. It's going to take, uh, you know, sort of a strong willed team that's uh, dedicated to win this thing. And I, the tough part is, I think probably six of them think they should win. And, uh, you know, there's only going to be one that's going to be happy at the end of the weekend. But uh, I think they're all in good spirit. In, in good headspace, as we say, and uh, pretty confident. So that that's what makes it so intense, is that they all feel they should win this. And finally, Jeff, one of the things that has been noticeable at this year's Briar is the lack of quote-unquote young teams. Most of the players on the top teams have made multiple appearances at the Briar at this point in their careers. You follow the young Canadian teams as closely as anyone. Teams like uh, Team Tardy of BC, who won two straight World Juniors, and several other young teams from across the country. Are any of them on the doorstep of breaking through against the current cop of elite men's teams yeah i think you know there's probably a few that are getting close like i don't think they're going to challenge these teams for um for olympics this cycle but i think the next one for sure there's uh, like you said there's a, a couple of good young teams out of bc definitely a few out of manitoba uh, a couple of ontario um you know there's tanner horgan there's calvert there's uh like you said tyler tardy's going to make a push in the men's league and i think I think that's the thing, you know, it's always hard when you're getting beaten up a little bit, but uh, 
the young team sort of got to buckle down and uh, you know work as hard as these guys are and uh, accept some some losses that you're probably not used to because they've had successful junior careers. So, you know, we know they're there. Um, you know, they just got to get that exposure, get to maybe a few of the slams and get some uh, ice arena, ice playing time. So I think we're still in pretty good shape. And that does it for our final recap from the 2020 Tim Hortons Briar. I will post a blog discussing the Briar online tomorrow, but I wanted to end this recap by thanking the players for being so gracious with their time throughout the week in Kingston. The volunteers for making the event so seamless, and to all of you for listening in and sharing an incredible week of curling. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack. And that does it for this episode of the From the Hack podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. My name is Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.